have a Bible with you this morning and you'd like to follow along, uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 17, uh, the first four verses of it. In the Black Pew Bibles, that's on page 876. Uh, So Jesus has been speaking to a mixed crowd, uh, mixed between his disciples, his followers, and, and Pharisees, speaking on the obligation to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we are unloving and uncaring to the needs of our fellow man, if we place our temporary comfort above their survival, if we are investing in the things that are temporary rather than the things that are eternal, that reveals something. That reveals something about ourselves. Because we don't earn our way into the kingdom by what we do, but rather we are welcomed into that kingdom, into that renewed, restored creation as an undeserved gift, through faith, by believing in Jesus. And when we believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that he will do what it is that he said he's going to do, that will change us. That has to change us. We will love, in increasing measure, the Lord our God with everything that we are and everything that we have because he is the one who has given us all good things. And we will love our neighbor as ourselves because we will be so filled with the love of God that it cannot help but overflow out of us and into the lives of those around us. And so as a pattern of our lives, if we are not doing, if we are not pursuing, if we are not seeking these things, then that reveals that we have not truly known who God is in the first place. It says in 1 John 4, uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so in our passage for this morning, Jesus is turning today to speak directly to his disciples. So let's read together uh, verses 1 through 4. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the first thing that we need to see and we need to recognize here is that our sin harms the people around us. So there's two dimensions to our sin. There's a vertical dimension and there's a horizontal dimension, right? Our sin is the cause of us being separated from God. That vertical relationship between us and our creator was broken, is broken by our sin. But on a horizontal basis, our sin is also the cause of harm to other people. And so Jesus begins and he says, temptations to sin, stumbling blocks are sure to come. They're going to be there. That conflict, that brokenness is going to be there. But woe to the one 
it is too bad for the one through whom they come. Because it would be better for that person. It would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around their neck and cast into the sea than that he should be the cause, that he should be the reason for one of these little ones, for one of these followers of Jesus to sin. So temptations, offenses, stumbling blocks, sin, anything that makes it more difficult for us to walk after and follow Jesus. This is a stumbling block. The idea is that if I'm trying to walk that way and follow after Jesus, and this is in my path, there's the potential here, even if I see it and and understand what it is, there's the potential here for me to trip over it and to stumble and to fall and to lose my way. So Jesus says, these stumbling blocks in your path, these stumbling blocks in the way of following after me, in the walk of being a Christian, are going to be there. They're going to be there. But woe to the person who puts them there in the first place. Because we can, through our sin, put stumbling blocks in the paths of other people that make it more difficult for them to follow Jesus. We have, in our actions, the ability to help people follow Jesus more closely or to make it more difficult. And Jesus is saying, is saying here that if we have a part to play in a brother or sister stumbling in their following after him, we would be better off dead. We would be better off dead. There was a um, guy I knew one time who uh, went to church for at least the first time in his adult life. Um, after much, uh, after much encouragement on the part of his family. And he walks through the doors, and the first thing that he encounters is a person who uh, has some ungracious comments to make about the clothes that he was wearing. Uh, he was not in his Sunday best, which was which is not really a problem, but for this man, it was. And he spoke unkindly to him. And that was the last time for years that that guy was willing to set foot in a church. He was there, and somebody put a stumbling stumbling block in front of him. He tripped over it, and he almost lost his way. Praise God. Praise God for his faithfulness. Uh, that is not the case anymore, but it was. For a long time, it looked as if that one interaction was enough to completely derail this person's pursuit of Jesus. We see the same sort of thing in, um, in hypocrisy, right? One of, the common, one of the common complaints that the world has about the church is that we can talk about how we, we can talk about love and grace and forgiveness, but then we turn around and we are harsh and judgmental and unkind and uncaring. Now, these are both kind of common stumbling blocks that you and I can put into the path of somebody who is trying to follow Jesus. Now, they made a choice, yes. When that man turned around and walked back out of the church, he was making a choice in that moment. 
but we can choose to either make it more difficult for them to follow Jesus or make it easier. We can choose to put stumbling blocks in their path or we can choose to remove them. And love requires us to place as few obstacles, as few stumbling blocks as we possibly can in their way. That's why Paul writes in Romans 14 to decide to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And in fact, Jesus says that it would be better for us if we died than to put a stumbling block in the way of another person who is trying to follow Jesus. Because death is reversible, right? Death is solvable. Death is something that um, that is temporary. But the damage that we can do to another person by putting a stumbling block in their path has eternal consequences. Our sin harms the people around us. So let's resolve then to fight sin together. And so in verse 3, Jesus begins, pay attention to yourselves. Now this is, the way that he puts this together, it is all of you. Pay attention to all of you. It's not just an encouragement to pay attention to yourself as an individual, but it is a command to all of his disciples to pay attention to all of his disciples. Why? Because that is what love requires, right? Just as sin has ripple effects and consequences, so does love. And so if I am trying to love my neighbor by not sinning against them, then one of the ways that you can demonstrate love to me is by saying, uh, or is by helping me not to sin against them. If I'm trying to love them by not putting stumbling blocks in their path, then one of the ways that you can love me is by saying, hey, Josh, you left a stumbling block there. You might want to pick that up before somebody trips over it. So how do we do this? How do we do this? What it boils down to is we preach the gospel to one another. We preach the gospel to one another. So Jesus goes on in verse 3 and says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So the perfect law of God we have seen in the last uh, few weeks, the perfect law of God was given to us in Moses, in the Ten Commandments, revealing to us the fact that we are sinners. We are told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so what we see when we hold our lives up to that standard is we see failure. We see the ways that we have fallen short. We see our sin. When we evaluate our actions, our words, our thoughts, our intentions, our motivations by that standard, we all fall short. Because we are selfish, we are self-centered, we are prideful, we are arrogant. And Jesus comes and he affirms all of it. He affirms all of it. He alone understands it perfectly and rightly, and he uses it unflinchingly to expose the sin of those around him. And in seeing and knowing and understanding our sin, he rebukes us. He tells us to repent to turn in a different direction. In Mark uh, 1.15, he begins his ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe 
in the gospel. Stop following the things of this world and follow him instead. But it's not just rebuke. It's not just the revelation of sin that we have. But in him we also have forgiveness. Because our sins are no longer counted against us. For he has paid the price for them on the cross. It says in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And Peter writes that he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is what he has told us, and this is what he has done for us. He called us to repentance and faith, to repent of our sins and believe in him for salvation. To repent, to turn away from our sins, to leave them behind. And to believe that he has paid the price for our sins. And that in that payment they are forgiven. He has told us to repent and to believe in him. And if that is what he has done for us, then that is what we are to do for one another. God has rebuked us. He has told us that what we are doing is wrong. But he didn't leave us to die in our sins. He didn't abandon us, but he loved us enough to call us to repentance. And in the same way here, Jesus calls us to rebuke our brothers and sisters, to call them to repentance when they are in sin. What God has done for us, we do for others. He has called us to repentance And we call each other to repentance. And just as when we repented of our sins, God forgave us. In the same way, when others repent of their sins, we forgive them. Paul writes about this in Colossians 3. When he's talking about what it looks like to to follow after Jesus. He says, put on then as as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then again, going back to 1 John, in this is love. This is what love looks like. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, he sent the payment. He sent the payment in place of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, he says in verse 11, we also ought to love one another. And the goal here, the goal here is not to tear down, but to build up, right? To pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The goal is not to make them pay. It's not to make them sorry for for what they've done. But to reconcile with them. It says in Galatians 6 that if anyone is caught in any transgression. That you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. He says in verse 2. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Right? Because it's not just their burden. Because their sin is your burden as well. 
Pay attention to each other. Bear their burdens. Build them up. Love them well. Do for each other what it is that God has done for you. There's a helpful uh, expansion of this in Matthew 18. Um, there's a good chunk of the, of the four Gospels that contain a lot, of the same, um, a lot of the same ideas. And so we turn to Matthew 18 and we read in verse 15 that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this is something that, that Jesus envisions as beginning as, as small and as privately as possible. Right? Because the goal is not to condemn or to expose or to embarrass, but to build up and to love and to reconcile. And so you sit down with somebody and you open up the Bible and you talk it through. Scripture says this, your life says something different. You've got a problem here. And either they are going to say, they're going to say one of kind of three different things. Right? One, they could say, Man, you're right. The Bible says that I shouldn't be doing this. And I am, and I'm, I'm sorry, I repent. Good, Jesus says. Good, wonderful. That's exactly what we want. We want to love one another well enough to be willing to step in and prevent the harm and the damage that they might be doing through their sin. To help them remove that stumbling block, both in their own walk and in the walks of those around them. One of the other possible responses is, uh, I'm not sure that I see that the same way that you do. I'm not sure that that's a sin. That's an opportunity then for some further discussion, further study, further prayer. And perhaps it's not as clear cut as you thought it was. But in that study, in that discussion, in that prayer, in that careful consideration, what you are doing is you are loving them. You're coming alongside of them and saying, listen, I love you, and I want the very best for you. Let's try and figure this out together with one another. The third possibility there is the most grave and the most difficult, where they say, yeah, it's a, sin. it's a sin. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it anyway. And that's where, that's where we move on in what Jesus outlined. He said, take a person or two with you. Walk through it again. Walk through it again. And if they persist in their sin, then tell it to the church. And the entire church then goes to that person and says, brother, you're trapped here. You're stuck. What you are doing is sin and you must repent. And if you have, then the entire body of believers that you have loved and trusted and walked with for years telling you that you are actively choosing sin over following Jesus and you will not repent, then that says something. That says something about the condition of your heart. 
Because if you are willing to make that choice to persist in your sin over and against the love of God revealed to you in the entirety of the church, then insofar as we are able to determine, you're not following Jesus. You are not a Christian. It's not that they hate you, that they aren't going to speak to you, but the nature of that relationship has to change. Because they can no longer regard you as a brother or as a sister in Christ. Instead, you are a lost sheep who needs to repent and trust in Jesus. This is not just a a one-time event. This is not just a uh, a, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But this is a rhythm and a pattern that we as the church are supposed to be exhibiting. Over and over and over, we are supposed to be helping one another to walk well, to follow after Jesus, and to help one another guard against the harm that our sin can do to ourselves and to the people around us. That's why he says in verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in a day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him over and over and over As we are sinned against, if he sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is our daily walk, our daily rhythm, calling each other to repent and then forgiving and healing and reconciling. We do this to one another because that is what God has done for us. We rebuke sin. We call the sinner to repent and we forgive We reconcile. We heal what sin has torn apart. We set right the things that it has broken. Now, this is uncomfortable. This is hard. It is uncomfortable for us to confront sin. And so the question is, are we going to seek to be comfortable like the rich man from last week. That didn't end well for him. He sought his own comfort over the good of his brother. Or are we going to do the opposite of what he did and give up our own comfort to love our brothers and sisters well? It is uncomfortable. It's also difficult. It is difficult on both sides of this equation. It is difficult to bring the sins of others to their attention. And it is also difficult to have your own sins confronted. And maybe I'm projecting a little bit here, but I, I don't think so. It raises up pride. Right? How dare you? Who do you think you are? I'm doing perfectly fine. I'm right. I'm justified. And here's all the reasons why I'm perfectly good doing what it is that I'm doing. And there's also, there's also a way that, um, as Americans, we have this individualism, right? That wonders, who are you to tell me what it is that I can and can't do with my life or should or shouldn't do with my life? And we can wrap that like the Pharisees did, in kind of a religious cloak. Only God can judge me. Well, 
Yes, that is true. But if a brother or sister is coming to you and saying, you have left a gigantic stumbling block in your path, let me help you pick it up. And you say, who are you to tell me where I should and shouldn't be walking and what I should and shouldn't be leaving there? They're trying to help. They're trying to help. But we push back against that because we think that we are perfectly capable of taking care of ourselves. But the trouble is that both of those excuses fail, fail to understand the purpose and the intention here. The intention is to love well, to remove as many stumbling blocks as we can from the path, both for the good of my own soul, the good of your soul, and the good of their soul, and his soul, and her soul. That's the point here. But we are so often blind to our own sin and blind to the effects that it has on other people that this is a good gift. This is a good gift from God that is for our good. But while it is a good gift from God, it can also be abused. We can do this in a spirit of pride or of arrogance, or out of a desire to control the people around us, we can use this tool with the wrong motivations. And it can be abused. But if you think about it, the potential for abuse exists in all of, good, all of God's good gifts. Right? We can use food well. We can use food as a way to to nourish our bodies, to give us strength, to celebrate the goodness of God, or we can abuse it and eat to excess. We can use God's good gifts well in the manner that reflects his nature. And when we do that, they are a blessing to us and to the people around us. But when we misuse them, when we abuse them, then it's just one more occasion that we have hurt and we have hurt ourselves and hurt the people around us we can put more stumbling blocks in their paths but just because there is the potential for these things to be misused that does not mean that we shouldn't use them at all just because somebody can be given to drowning their feelings in a gallon of ice cream that does not mean that they shouldn't eat at all but they should seek to use the good gifts that God has given them in the way that he intended. To do this and to do it well also requires some things. It requires relationship with one another and it requires us to be vulnerable to one another. Because if you are going to rebuke me for my sin, then you've got to get close enough to me to see it. But in drawing close enough for you to be able to recognize my sin, I've got to get close enough to you to be able to see yours. That's an uncomfortable idea. We don't like that. As an example, uh, and she's not in here, but you can feel free to um, verify this with her. I can be, in some of my lesser moments, a little bit of a condescending jerk to my wife. I, I, I can. I understand this about myself. I'm actively trying to not be this way, but that is true of me. 
I can treat her as something that is less than me, rather than loving her the way that Christ has loved the church. That's sin. That is failure. That is missing the mark. That is falling short. And if you, church, are going to successfully hold me to account for that sin, then you need to be able to see me in the places and the times that I am being who I really am. Because I can keep it under wraps for a Sunday morning. I can keep that condescension under control for a few hours at a time. That's not a problem. But if you can see me interact with her for multiple hours through the course of a week after weeks and weeks, you are going to notice. You should notice. And so if that means, that means then that if we are going to fulfill this command by Jesus, then we must, we need to be in one another's lives. And this runs contrary to the pattern that we've seen in society around us for the last 50 years. Right? The pattern is to greater isolation. Right? The pattern is to keep people at arm's length. Don't let them get too close. Which has been enabled by some of the segmented relationships that we have. Right? I've got the people that I work with and then I've got my family, and then I've got my church people, and then I've got my friends, and these are all these different neat little groups that don't really ever talk to one another, and so that's fine, because and that then enables me to be a jerk at work, and I don't have to worry about people at church finding out. I can be a complete fool. Tone it down a little bit. I can be a complete fool at home to my spouse and you know everything else is fine because it's just home there but i don't think that that has been a shift that has been to our benefit and we've seen it even further speaking to sort of my own generation we've seen it further in the way that um the way that we cultivate our online personalities right i get to choose the people that I present to and how I present myself, and they get to see who I want to show rather than who I truly am. And in all of this, we content ourselves with the relational equivalent of junk food, of empty calories, devoid of real nutrition, rather than the deep, rich, vulnerable relationships that would be required for us to be obedient to what Jesus has told us to do here. And furthermore, Furthermore, to be obedient to what Jesus has told us to do here requires that we examine our own hearts. I've got to look at myself and be able to positively affirm that I am doing this because I love the other person. I can't be doing it from a desire to control or to manipulate or to make them look bad or to make myself look good. And so I've got to have my own heart understood to a certain degree. I've also got to understand where is this sin present in my own life? Am I seeing it in their life and then blind to it in my own? That's a problem. We need to deal with our own hearts. We need to examine our own hearts if we are going to be obedient to what Jesus has said here. But obedience to what Jesus has said here 
is required. This is not optional. We can't look at this and say, well, that's good for somebody else, but not for me. We have, if we are going to follow Jesus, then we need, we need the loving accountability of the people around us. And if we are not willing to confront sin in ourselves, or if we are not willing to confront sin in the people around us, or if we are not willing to have our sin confronted by the people around us, then we are being disobedient to this command. And in failing to do, to deal with sin the way that Jesus tells us to deal with it here, we are participating in that sin. We have a part in it. If we are not willing to have our sin confronted by others, then we are in trouble. Not just for that original sin, but for our unwillingness to submit to the accountability that Jesus told us we needed and that we should submit to. Now, one of the tools that seems to be somewhere between helpful and necessary in this pursuit of holiness is some sort of mutual understanding. Right? Because if we're going to do this, we need to have a common understanding of what sin is and what it looks like. And we also need to have some sort of a mutual agreement there to hold one another accountable to that. And this right here is one of the primary purposes that uh, formal membership in a church serves today. Right? We come together and we understand and interpret the scriptures in a, in a very similar way. And uh, both in the absolute matters, what it concretely says or does not say, and we understand that there are areas that there's a variety of interpretations and understandings. And then having understood and interpreted the scriptures in a similar way, we commit to one another. I'm going to hold you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And you are going to hold me to repent of my sins and to trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And I am promising that I am going to be here even when you sin against me, even when you are being an unreasonable and difficult jerk of a human being. I'm going to love you to the very best of my ability, the way that God has loved me. To have that promise, to have that commitment, is reassuring. It's a help. It's a blessing. It's a good thing. Because the question, ultimately, is which, in, which is more important? Is it more important for me to love my neighbor? Or is it more important for me to look good? Is it more important for me to love my neighbor or more important for me to be comfortable? Is it more important for me to love my neighbor by cutting out the sin in my life or is it more important for me to maintain my autonomy and my individualism? Now, this takes intentional effort and it takes a conscious humility to be obedient to but we absolutely have to be obedient to it. If we're going to look at what Jesus says here and just say, no thanks, that's not for me. I'm not interested in that. Then what we're doing there is we're not following Jesus. We're following ourselves. 
And we must repent of that and trust in him. Now, if this is an area that you have failed to be obedient to, today is a new day. You can turn to the Lord in repentance and trust that your sin and your failure is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can repent and your sins will be forgiven. And if you need a group of people to walk with you in this way, to walk alongside of you, then let's talk about church membership. Not right this moment, but later on. But do not neglect the good gifts that God has given you to help you on your walk. They are there for your good. And when we do this well, when we live with our lives what Jesus has told us to do here, we are modeling for each other. And we are painting a picture for a watching world of the way that God has loved us. He has loved us in rebuking us. He did not leave us in our sin, but he called us to repentance. And when we are willing to leave behind our sin and to trust in him, he forgives us wholeheartedly. He welcomes us. We are reconciled to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... We struggle with this one, God. We have a hard time. We have a hard time admitting our need for our brothers and sisters. We have a hard time to accept our own blindness to sin. We have a hard time to submit to one another. But Lord, we trust your word. We trust what Jesus has told us here. Give us the strength and the courage that we need, not just to do the bare minimum here, but to pursue obedience to your word wholeheartedly. We want to follow Jesus in this. And we can't on our own. And so we pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would be convicting us each of our own sin, of our own failure in this respect, and that you would be granting us the grace and the mercy that we need to follow more closely today. And we trust with all of our hearts, Lord, that whatever our failure whatever our shortcoming, that the price for that has been paid by Christ on the cross. And we trust in that. And it is in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.